All right, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Life in the sun, present, and uh, thank you for joining us online this morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the leaders here at Life in the Sun. Well, everybody looks nice and pe peppy this morning. I was just uh, talking this morning to the, the first service, and you know, I said that my wife likes to go in and greet our, our granddaughter uh, in the morning, and she'll go over and she'll knock on the door and crack the door open and sneak on in there, and she'll begin to speak to her in tomorrow, words that I don't understand yet. But it's these morning greetings, right? And so the baby will roll over and start opening her eyes, and then as soon as she sees Nana, it's like this big smile comes on her face, and then she's just like trying to get out of the bed. And, uh, you know, and I use that this morning as just a way of us being able to come to God that way this morning, that there's life, because that's really what I want to press into this morning when it comes to being salt and light. Amen? Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you bring life to each one of us, specifically from your throne, oh God. We just sang about that this morning, Lord, that uh, blessing and honor to you, Lord God, because you are the author of life. And Father, today we just pray that your word goes out with power, with grace, with might, that it does not return void. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So today we're going to be uh, we're going into week two of our series in salt and light. And I'd like to begin with a simple recollection. When I was a teenager and I had first come to know Christ and I brought that message home to my parents, I just remember my dad, you know, thinking, okay, you know, what's going on? This is, this is a little different. Uh, and I would preach to them and I would share to them about Jesus and, and you know, eventually that it started to kind of irritate my dad, and he'd be like, you know, just tone it down a little bit, right? That's, you're getting a little too extreme with this, you know? And so how many of, of us have had that experience, right? You know, we, we bring the gospel back to our family, and, and uh, we, we kind of get labeled extremists, right? Bible thumpers, and, you know, there's all kinds of slogans out there that are used, but... That's really what the world sees in us, right? We, we come across as being extreme, right? We, especially in today's culture, Christianity is sometimes viewed almost adversarially, right? But the reality is, is what does God consider extreme, right? We can think about the world and what it considers extreme, but let's kind of dive into today what God thinks is extreme. Amen? So let's go ahead and we're going to start with uh, our scriptures. There's three references this morning. Uh, two were from the, the actual study that I was diving into, and then the last one I just added for effect. Okay? All right. So today we're going to, yeah, you can go back. We're just going to be, because I want to set the tone, I want to set the context. So when I'm talking about what is extreme to God, we look at God versus oppressors, 
or oppression. And so let's just go ahead and define that real quick, right? So oppression, it simply just means distress or affliction, to press or add presser, since the word press, right? It's, it's being pressed down upon. It's being under pressure. So let's go ahead and dive into the scriptures. It says, out of Isaiah chapter 3, we know our series is out of the book of Isaiah. So we're starting in verse 13. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The goods stolen from the poor are in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and oppressing the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of armies. So consider this, and as we move forward today, just remember that vineyard is the body. It's God's people. Okay, next slide. Isaiah 10, 1 and 2 says, Woe to those who enact unjust statutes and to those who constantly record harmful decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor among my people. Of their, uh, I'm sorry, needy of justice and rob the poor among my people of their rights. Something's missing there. Maybe my copy was a little off. So that the widows may be their spoil and they may plunder the orphans. And lastly, Exodus 22, 21 to 24, you shall not oppress a stranger nor torment him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not oppress any widow or orphan if you oppress him at all. And if he cries out to me, I will assuredly hear his cry and my anger will be kindled and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Again, we are God's vineyard. And when it comes to that term rights that we, that we read in, uh, in this set of scriptures, we have to understand that you know, it's different than the rights that we think of today, right? The, the right to do whatever we want as a verse to the right to do what God has enabled us to do. You see, rights are enacted and provided by laws or formal decrees, whether human or divine. But the ultimate lawgiver is God. Justice, as we defend it, is based on God's moral law. So let's go to Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 9. Is that up there? There it is. So let's read this one. For the Lord your God shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So in the context of oppression, we're beginning to see some actions here that sound very familiar to us. And that familiar term we can look at as social justice. It's really what we do with the relationship that we have with God. And we see here that God's focus is primarily in four distinct areas. And it's oppression of the stranger or the foreigner, the orphan, which includes the fatherless, 
or uh, the poor and the widow. And for context, we have to understand how oppression fits into God's plan for salvation. And we have to look at the context that Israel played in the reality of oppression. You see, initially God intended to use Israel as a redemptive example, right? Salt and light. His intent was to show the world what following him looked like. That's, that's really what this was about. However, God ended up using oppressive nations to turn his people back to him when they didn't. We know back in Genesis he told Abraham and prophesied that in fact Israel would be, become slaves for 400 years. And they would be slaves in a strange land and they will... Uh, but God, this is what was interesting, but God would end up judging, get this, he ended up judging Egypt for oppressing them, even though he allowed it. And in fact, when he came out, or when uh, the, the Jews came out of, Is, uh, out, of, out of Egypt, that was the beginning of that redemptive story that God wants us to understand. You see, unfortunately, after settling in the land of Canaan, the nation of Israel also became oppressive. Israel's priests and religious leaders became corrupt, oppressing the foreigner, the poor, the orphans, and the widows themselves. So much of the scripture that we've read this morning, some of it is pointed directly at us. We're the ones who are supposed to show justice to the world. We're the ones who are supposed to un understand what it means to bring God's redemptive story to the world. So that leads us into Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 28. Let's go ahead and read that. It says, But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them in the, at, to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried out again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion. For God has made it clear in his word that he stands against oppression. Again, God sent the prophets of the Old Testament over and over to warn the people of the coming judgment if they did not change their ways or repent. And these messengers were often killed for their messages. So eventually we know the story. God expels them. And the descendants of Abraham are dispersed and become subject to the world empires that they were supposed to, in fact, contra, uh, counteract. This was that redemptive value that God wanted his people to have in the world. And time goes by, the world changes hands. By the first century, the Jews live scattered across the world, and their homeland is under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. But during this time, a man named Jesus arrived. As God in the flesh, Jesus continued the same message of his desire to set captives free. Jesus begins proclaiming the coming of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of his God. And we can see this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. 
which is a direct quote of Isaiah uh, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So we understand something now about oppression is something that God wants us to set free from, be set free from, but we have to understand what, what is it really? Well, we can actually go back to the Garden of Eden and understand that oppression first started with us. It first started with the devil showing up on the scene and tempting Eve, lying to her, using manipulation, and he got her to believe basically a lie. And then we see it in Cain over Abel. We see it again with the nation of Israel. We see oppression under Egypt, under Babylon, and eventually we also see it under Nazi Germany. And ultimately we can go to the world and look at it as Satan over the world and ultimately sin over mankind. But Jesus, Jesus says that this kingdom is not of this world and thankful, thankfully so. And so his followers, followers do not need violence to overthrow oppressors. You see, Jesus stopped his followers even from fighting back when he was being arrested. If you remember, Peter, was, he drew the sword and he attacked one of the soldiers that was oppressing them. And Jesus said, no, this is not the time. Put away your sword. And he even reached out and began to heal the one that was attacking him. And we begin now to see what oppression really is. Oppression is the root of our sin. It's the root of of what's covering us. It's pressing on us. It's pressing on the world. And that's what God wants to set us free from. And it starts with what's beginning in our heart. It starts with who we are. And it starts with the resurrection. You see, Jesus, at that time, knowing that he was about to die, but he begins to remind his disciples that instead of overthrowing the, Rom the Romans, he in fact will give himself to those that oppress him. This was a confusing fact, obviously, for the disciples. They're like, wait a minute, I thought the kingdom was now. That was Jewish theology. That was the, the return of the Messiah, was to overthrow the kingdoms of the world. But here Jesus is like, wait a minute, something, something ain't right with this story. You, you're going you're gonna to do what? But again, we're learning what redemption in God's kingdom looks like. You see, the resurrection, they didn't know this, but the resurrection is, would end up being the ultimate response against all oppression, even against the rulers of darkness that oppress mankind. We've already begun to discuss what the, the term social justice, but before we can really understand what social justice means, we have to understand biblical justice. 
So you see, social justice started out as a term that was coined by a Jesuit priest back in the 1840s, which was later actually adopted into a catechism within the Catholic Church. And they actually defined social justice as providing conditions that allow associations or individuals to obtain what is their due. So remember going back to that first set of scriptures where it talked about right? We're going to get into this. It's, that's the word justice. It's a word called mishpat. And it has a lot of connotation to it that specifically has to do with what is our due. And according to their nature and their vocation is what they added. Social justice is linked to the common good and the exercise of authority. But social justice as we know it today really didn't come about until the 1970s. It was a, a term that was widely, even then, associated with liberal, secular, political philosophy. Today, the Oxford English Dictionary defines social justice as justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. I mean, that's obviously not the gospel. You know, that's the love of money. It's the worry about how money is distributed in, a, in amongst the people of the land. And in fact, it vaguely defines justice as a quality of being fair and reasonable. But when you look at the context, it has nothing to do with biblical justice. So to keep it biblical, we have to understand that we do not advocate for the right to sin. We stand for freedom from sin. We do not stand for freedom to sin. To understand social justice from a biblical perspective, we must first understand biblical justice. Biblical concept of justice is primarily captured again in two Hebrew words. If we go to the next slide, one of them I already covered, which is mishpat. It's the word that we, that we see in the Bible as justice. It is giving people what they are due. It's a right, okay? Whether punishment or protection. Or you could even add provision when he talks about feeding the poor and helping the, uh, the homeless and the widow and the orphan, okay? And this is how it's acted out. It's acted out in righteousness. It's under a word uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, tzedakah. It's day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all relationships with fairness, generosity, and equity. It's really love. We'll go to... 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and it talks about what love is, right? It's, it's the beginning of us having our, our mind renewed under the gospel to begin to think of others before we think of ourselves. You see, we come to Christ selfish. We come to Christ with needs. We come to Christ with sin. But God is saying, no, I want to turn the table on that. I want to show you a new way. I want to show you something different. And interesting enough, the, the use of these two words is perfectly displayed in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. It says, this is what the Lord says, let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. 
It's interesting that God covers these three areas because is this not what the world thinks is going to solve our social issues? He think, the, the world thinks that as long as we're wise enough, as long as we're mighty enough, and as long as we are rich enough, then we can solve all the problems in the world. But God says, no. This is, the, this is what God really says about it. He says, but let the one who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So we see that God's intent was for Israel to be that representative. And each one of us sitting in here today are called to do the same thing. We're called to be God's salt and light in this world. And it's interesting because it's also covered in Proverbs 21. It says, to do righteousness and justice is preferred by the Lord more than sacrifice. And again, in Matthew 5.41, Jesus brings an understanding to us where it says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This is voluntary. Social justice means that we engage the world out of a heart of compassion. There's a compelling that happens within us because we see the orphan, we see the poor, we see the fatherless, the homeless, and our heart goes out to them as a result of their condition, and God wants to relieve that pressure. Unfortunately, there are some hindrances and roadblocks as a result of an unchanged life. This is Whenever we're addressing social issues, we have to understand it's coming from a, a, a heart of first being rooted in, and grounded in the gospel and knowing that we are first and foremost children of God acting on his behalf with his heart. Because if we're not, selfish, ignorance, pride, and indifference, lack of experiencing and knowing God's love, mercy, and grace, because of this we end up focusing on judgment, we insist on being right, which is self-righteousness, and we often end up being combative. And that's unfortunately what we see a lot today in social media. We see it a lot in the news. We see it a lot in even the ways that we are tempted to respond to the ills of our society today. We end up becoming uh, combative in our uh, responses online and Facebook or you know, chat groups or whatever. But God is saying, no, there's a better way. And it's really, again, rooted in the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news about what God has done, culminating in Christ Jesus, especially in his cross and resurrection. You see, the gospel is not what we do, but it's our identity. It's who we are because it's who God is. So therefore, social justice is simply the result of the gospel that reconciles us to God. It transforms us. It shapes our behavior, our priorities, our values and relationships to be like Christ in the world. That is our mandate. Social justice is not about any specific list of things that we should be doing, but it first starts with who we are as a person. 
It starts with our hearts being transformed in the love of God, and then we begin to care for the things that God cares about. He be we begin to act in ways that are righteous, compassionate, and just. And it's in these things that we find that the world begins to know who God is through the power of the gospel. This is what salt and light is. So we can go to... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, social justice is not about a list of to-dos. It's just us simply being Christ in the world. Again, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, again it says, Do all things without complaining or arguments, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. We get to be salt and light. But it takes temperance. It takes us surrendering to the voice of God in our heart and being a part of this body uh, of Christ and being in life that God wants us to have. You see, disciples of Jesus had an effect on the world around them. The social conditions under which people lived back then were not secondary concerns to God, and they're not secondary now. The gospel and social justice are not separate issues, but they are inexorably intertwined because it ends up being what we do once we know who we are. You see, God's heart and priority can be seen when it comes to justice for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When we see social justice, we have to understand it comes from this heart of being surrendered to God and therefore doing what he has called each and every one of us to do. So if there's an area of concern that you have that God has placed on your heart, then run with it. Because we should engage in social justice. Amen? You see, we should ensure that every person is treated with dignity and given their right, their due, the mercy and love of God. Christians are engaged in social justice when we advocate for God on issues such as abortion, feeding the poor, equal rights, human trafficking, and even the misuse of power. And when we look at what, you know, so you might be asking, so what do you want me to do with all this information? What, what is my part? Well, I would say first and foremost, your part is simply to get to know God first. Get to know his mercy. Get to know his love and his grace and how it applies in your life. There's different examples all through this room of ministry going on, whether you uh, are speaking to somebody about their marriage, counseling them to continue in the matrimony that God had placed them in. Maybe you're counseling somebody on the use of pornography. Maybe all you did was Help somebody step back from committing suicide. 
It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be on a huge national political scale. Often the gospel and social justice are worked out in simple terms of doing the ministry that God has called you to do, to be salt and light. You see, Jesus, when he was here, he healed people. So he was concerned about their health. He fed people. So he was concerned about their physical well-being. He embraced the outcast, and he definitely crossed racial and ethnic barriers. And he defended women and children in a culture where that was not popular. So church, it's not going to be popular today. It's not going to be popular to be a Christian, especially if you're standing for the things that God stands for. And that's why we do this as a group. That's why we do this as a body. We advocate on behalf of God on these things that God advocates for. We stand against the oppressive oppressive uh, uh, governments. We stand against oppressive people. We, we stand against oppressive sin in our heart. It starts with our heart. And therefore, the gospel itself is really the focus of social justice. The church's chief tool, in fact, in the advocacy of social justice is, again, the gospel. Redeemed humanity is likelier to care about biblical justice than the world. And I just want to close with just a simple understanding and statement. Paul mentioned it all through his, his, uh, his writings. He used the word compelled. Again, the so social gospel, or the, you know, uh, that's not what we're talking about. The gospel is powerful. It's powerful because it is the only thing that will compel you. Me standing up here telling you what to do is not going to compel you to do anything. What's going to compel you is going back to that foundation, the foundation of our relationship with Jesus Christ, the foundation of knowing who God is in each one of us and him demonstrating his love to each one of us. And in the exercise of that demonstration, we begin to see who God is and what he does and what he cares for. By reading his word, we begin to understand the truth of what he stands for. And when we do that, we begin to change the world around us, one person at a time, by advocating for the gospel, advocating for the, the things that God cares specifically about. You see, and finally, our spirit, because if we don't, just like Paul, our spirit will grow uneasy within us. I know it does for me. I mean, how many of us, when we pull up to the, the stoplight there in... Uh, uh, where's that at? By McDonald's in, uh, in was it, uh, in uh, Harmon. There's always going to be somebody there asking for money, right? And how many of us are driving up and we forget about it and we're like, oh, there's so... And there in that is our reaction. That's the part that God is wanting us to change. You know, so we may ask that question. We drive up and, you know, whatever our response is, whether we get in the other lane to avoid them or whether we're actually getting in that lane on purpose and pulling out our wallet, what God wants us to understand is the heart of compassion, the heart of mercy, 
the heart of grace. You see, all those things can go through our mind when we're going up to that stoplight and be like, well, I don't know what the guy's going to do with that money. Maybe he's going to go buy alcohol. But again, it goes back to that relationship that you have with God. You simply pray. God, what do you want me to do right now? And he'll put it in your heart what to do. Trust me, he will. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so let's just go ahead and pray. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Father, we just thank you that each one of us are called to do something that sometimes is inherently uncomfortable for our flesh. But Father, thank you that you've given us your spirit that compels us, Lord God, to reach out to a lost and dying world. As your word says, Lord, that it's a corrupt generation. We know that. But what is corrupting them is oppressing them, Lord God. And what's ultimately oppressing them is sin. And Father, I just pray that for each one of us here today, that we're pressing in to relieve their pressure. That we're pressing in to you, Father, so that we can become examples before them. And not just examples, but Father, we can actually reach out and minister to them, Father. Minister to the needs of this world. Often the gospel is beautifully displayed in the way that we minister to these four different uh, people groups, Lord. The, the foreigner, the, the homeless, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor. So, Father, help our hearts, Lord, to be compelled. Not because we have to, Lord God, but because we see your great love for them. You're powerful, immense, mind-blowing love, Lord God. So for all of us that are sitting here today, Lord God, just give us that assurance, Father, that reaching out is the best thing that we can do. Overcome our fear. Overcome our, our doubt. Overcome our reluctance, Lord God, and overcome our selfishness so that we can truly shine as lights in this world. In Jesus' name. So I'd also like to address another group of people here this morning that I don't want to leave out. So with every head bowed and every eyes closed, if what you heard this morning was just something that you never heard before, and this is new to you, if this is something that you've just been introduced to, not understanding what this whole thing means about being changed or what the gospel even is. I just want to be able to tell you today that it is something that is so immensely powerful and beautiful. But not only that, you need it. And if that's you this morning, if you just want to lift up your hand and say, yeah, Mr. Chris, please, Pray for me. I want to give my life. I want, to, I want to change life. And if that's you, just go ahead and slip up your hand, and that way we can pray for you this morning. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know that foundation, if that is something this morning that maybe you had come to that conclusion that 
yeah, I don't really know this God. I've been kind of doing this in my own self-righteousness. If that's you, then go ahead and raise your hand. Amen. Thank you for that hand. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Everybody pray with me together so we can cover everybody here this morning. Father, I just come before you this morning, Lord, and I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I recognize the need for your mercy and your grace, for you to cover my sin. And Father, I believe that you died, that your son Jesus died and was had risen on the third day. I believe that he had covered my sin through the shedding of his blood. And I surrender my life to you right now. I surrender all authority. I surrender all purposes in my life to you. And I trust in the provision of Jesus Christ. And I ask for your Holy Spirit now to live in me and guide me. And I invite you in, into my life, into my heart, and I make you Lord of all. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you prayed that prayer, uh, just go ahead and uh, make your way over to the table to my right, and somebody will greet you there, and they'll give you a nice little package and help you to continue your amazing walk with God that just started today. So everybody else, be blessed, go out, and be salt and light knowing that God is the one who moves us forward day by day. Amen. Amen.